prayers be come to God's word. Father God, thank you for the words of the Bible. Father, thank you for the gift they are to us. Father, pray this morning as we look into your word by your Holy Spirit. Father, speak to us. Uh, Father, help us to understand what you have called to be written here, that our lives might be changed, and that we might grow more into the likeness of your Son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been haunted by words? I don't mean haunted like ghosts and that sort of thing, but have words ever had such a profound effect on you that they've stuck in you like a splinter? They just sort of stayed with you and stuck with you. That was John Bunyan's experience. Quite hard to see that with the uh, dark, <laughs> sort of fits quite well, really, sort of ghostly appearance from the back. But uh, that's John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And he's the second most published, that's the second most published book in English uh, of all time. And he wrote many other uh, books too. Uh, but for about two and a half years, John Bunyan's mind latched on to the verses that we're looking at this morning. And they sort of stuck in him like a splinter. And he convinced himself that he had committed what the passage calls an eternal sin, the unforgivable sin. He wrote himself an autobiography, and a huge chunk of it is taken up with writing about his experiences of despair, and writing about the processes that his mind went through trying to deal with this passage. What if I've done the eternal sin? What if I'm I'm damned? What if I'm not really a Christian? What if I'm not going to heaven? He was so concerned with it that he struggled sleeping, he struggled eating. He described it as an affliction, a daily grinding away at his soul. I'm so bad, thought Bunyan, that if there was an unforgivable sin, I must have committed it. I'm so full of sin that I must have committed that one too. But the more I've looked at these verses this week, the more I'm convinced that these verses aren't there to torment us and trouble us as believers. They're actually there to reassure us as believers about our sin. The verses are actually there to show us Jesus' victory over sin and evil, not encourage defeatism and despair. We're supposed to rejoice, if you like, in the power of Jesus, not be anxious about the power of sin. And the people who Jesus meets this week, well, they're not really bothered about any of this, as we'll see. So our first point, so we've got a bit of alliteration this morning. Satanic slanders from sceptical scribes. Here we go. Uh, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. As we come to this passage, Jesus has, Jesus has been stirring uh, things up. He's been causing a stir up in the north of the country. And now a delegation from the capital, from Jerusalem, has come up uh, to find out what's going on with this upstart northerner. We know from the other Gospels that the triggering event for this was the casting out of a demon from a man who was blind and mute. But Mark's already dealt with incidents like this in chapters 1 and 2, so he just gives us the outcome. The scribes, the official Bible handlers and theologians of the country, accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil. Notice they don't deny that he's performing miracles. They No, plainly, they express it plainly, that he's been casting out evil spirits, healing the sick, curing the lame. It's pretty hard to deny, isn't it, when actually those people are walking around, especially people who are the lame walking around. They can't deny that Jesus has power. But they claim instead that his power is not from God, but from the devil. 
Now, we've seen their thinking already with things like this. They've been thinking, oh, well, Jesus, he isn't following our version of the rules. They had all these extra rules that they, they had. Well, Jesus isn't keeping them. He doesn't fit with our idea of what the Messiah should be. We think we know what the Messiah should be. And yet, despite those two things, he has supernatural power. Therefore, that supernatural power must be evil, because it's against what we're saying. So they start to slander Jesus, to diss him, in easier words. He's demon-possessed. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Now, despite what you might read in books on demonology that you can get in sort of second-hand bookshops and things, Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, is not the name of a specific demon in a long list of named demons. There are only two named demons in the Bible, the devil and a group of them who call themselves Legion. Beelzebul was the name given to one of the gods of the Philistines, and by that time in the New Testament they come to equate that with the devil. And if you think about it, the devil goes by quite a lot of names, doesn't he? Beelzebul, that means Lord of the House. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Satan, the enemy, the accuser. Lucifer, Lightbringer. There's something in the news this week that a woman had named a child Lucifer, not knowing what the sort of connotations were. But uh, it'd be nice, nice meaning, Lightbringer. Lucifer, Lightbringer. Apollyon, Abaddon, both being destroyer. Father of lies. The devil, the accuser. The prince of demons, the prince of the power of the air. All of these ways are just, all these ways are, are just describing the same person. All describing the same supernatural being who rebelled against his maker and led our first parents into sin. The one they use here though, Beelzebul, literally means lord of the house. And that fits in if you look at the passage and the stories that he tells. He tells stories, two stories about houses. In the Old Testament, that same god is called Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Now that name is ambiguous. It may be a Hebrew pun on his name. Flies possibly being another way of talking about dung and sort of flies that hang around him. Um, in my head, it's just been Queen songs go through my head all week. You know, Beelzebub. Anyway, but uh, it's it's hard to tell whether it's a pun. It could be that the idea is that he's a verter of disease, which comes with flies. It's hard to tell. But they're equating here with the prince of demons. That's who they're talking about, the devil. They're just using these names to insult him. Slandering Jesus and claiming that the power at work in him is satanic, is unclean, is evil. So last week we had Jesus' family saying that he was mad. Now this week we've got the scribes saying that he's bad. That he's working with the devil. As C.S. Lewis, author of the Narnia book, said, when you look at Jesus' face, really there are only three options. Jesus is either mad, or he's bad, or he's God. And the scribes here are definitely in the bad category, that's what they think. Jesus is bad. It's not such a common view these days. That's partly because often outside of churches and places like that, people don't believe in the supernatural. Though there are new atheists who certainly teach that God is bad, don't they? So Richard Dawkins called God misogynistic, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, and sort of goes on. They wouldn't uh, agree that his source of his power is supernatural, but they would think that actually God is a bad thing, that something bad is going on. And what they claim is that all the God stuff came later with Jesus. So often they'll say, oh, Jesus was a good man. But actually all the God stuff that's been attached to him since, that's, that's the bad stuff that's come. 
willfully ignoring the fact that actually the earliest accounts of Jesus' life all have him doing supernatural acts, don't they? That the disputes at the time are not over whether he does them, but what the source of his power was. And that far from adding all that God stuff, the debates actually in the early church, if you look back, were to whether Jesus was actually a man. They all agreed he was God. They were trying to work out whether he was actually a man. They took the God stuff as given. When they dismissed the supernatural parts as later additions, they're effectively accusing the disciples who wrote the Gospels as being liars, tricking people into Jesus. The source then, in effect, is still evil, even if it's not Jesus himself. Despite the fact they have zero textual evidence backing up that they've been uh, changed or added to. So these people still think that something bad is going on when it comes to Jesus, even if it's not supernatural. But the scribes here think that he's supernaturally bad. Scribes think that he's possessed by an evil spirit, and they think he's working with the devil. So what does Jesus say in response? Well, we get some solid sense from someone stronger than Satan. I'm not trying to do tongue twisters, but... Uh, <laughs> Nearly there. Okay, let me read to you verses 23 to 27. And he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus rebuts their slander. He's not in league with the devil. And he refutes them in parables. Now the whole next section of Mark is dominated by parables, so I'm not going to delve too much into that now. But parables are not the same as illustrations. That's often how we treat them, isn't it? Trying to make things clearer. Illustrations, believe it or not, are meant to illustrate they're meant to make something uh, more clear. They're meant to bring it to light. Parables, on the other hand, are supposed to bring light to some and bring darkness to others. They're to be there to be understood by some and not understood by others. And they often act like a separating tool. They sort of separate, separate out the hearers, sending some people one way and sending other people another way. But we'll see that more as we uh, go on in Mark's Gospel later this year. But here he tells two parable stories. One is about a house which is broken in two, and the second is a house that is broken into. Okay? Get that so far, yeah? So the point of the first one, the house that's broken in two, is that if uh, the devil is uh, working with Jesus to cast out demons, then that makes no sense whatsoever. Why would the prince of demons get rid of demons? How would that further his purposes? It would be like a kingdom sending its soldiers against its own soldiers. It would be like a noble family working for its own downfall. Now those things do occasionally happen, but never by design of the king. Never by design of the person who's in charge. It's usually a rebel trying to overthrow them. But it's never the same person in charge of both forces. Like a king sending half his troops against the other half. What purpose would that serve? He'd just decimate his troops, wouldn't he? And yet that's the accusation of the scribes. In their minds, Jesus is one of Satan's minions, sent by Satan to undo the work of Satan. That's what they're saying. It would make no sense for the devil to empower someone 
to undo his own work. To spend half his time sending out evil spirits into people and half his time sending people to cast them out again. What would be the point of that? The scribe's story makes no sense and Jesus' parable shows that. It just makes no sense what they're saying. The point of the second parable that the house has broken into is that the stronger casts out the weaker. If you're going to burgle a house, I don't imagine many of us have had sort of worked out what our plans are to burgle a house. I did once break into a church uh, when I was on beach fishing, but only because we left the keys somewhere. And I didn't. Da- I'll tell you the story later. You can ask me about it afterwards. But most of us don't think about how to burgle a house, do we? But if you're thinking about it, really, what you need to do is tie up the big burly owner. If it's got someone who's really strong in the house, then you need to tie them up first. Otherwise, when you get in, they're just going to throw you out and cast you out on your ear. If you want to plunder the strong man, you have to be stronger than the strong man. Well, Jesus here is kicking out the devil's henchmen, so to speak, his minions, his property. And he's saying that he can only do that because he's stronger than the devil. What he's actually showing by casting out demons is that he's more powerful than their master. He can only do this because he's bound a strongman, Satan. Now these demons are strong. In Acts 19, some non-believers try to cast out demons. They get beaten up, stripped naked and kicked out of the house. Okay? But here, these demons, well actually, Jesus is kicking them out. And the prince of demons, you'd imagine, will be even stronger than these. But they're no match for Jesus. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. And think about it. Think about what Jesus here is claiming. In this parable, he is the stronger man. He's claiming to be more powerful than the devil. He's claiming to the man who is able to, uh, he's claiming to be the man who is able to bind the devil and plunder his house. And he's not just claiming to be stronger. That would be one thing, wouldn't it? He's actually demonstrating that he's stronger. He's actually showing them that he can do this. He's casting out these demons by his own authority. He's showing them that he can do this. The devil, maybe Beelzebub, lord of the house, but Jesus is walking into that house and throwing out his property. Jesus throws out these demons with ease, with a word. He silences them easier than you or I pressing the mute button on a TV. This is not hard for him. That's how much greater than the devil he is. So this is not a contest. This is creator versus creation, not equal versus equal. You see, sometimes you get the impression, don't you, that God versus the devil is sort of like a big chess match. I know we've got some chess fans in here as well this morning. Where it's sort of each side is nearly evenly matched, but maybe God is just a bit cleverer and has a few more pieces. It's not it at all. It's not Star Wars where the dark side and the light side are always basically evenly matched. That's mysticism, that's Zoroastrianism. It's not the God of the Bible. God in the Bible has no equal, not even close. This is what he says in Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That is the God of the Bible. 
The devil may be lord of the house, but Jesus is lord of all. Make no mistakes, the devil is not Jesus' equal. No one is Jesus' equal apart from the Father and the Spirit. But the devil is bound. The devil is beaten. The coming of Jesus, especially in the end of death of Jesus on the cross, decisively binds the devil. He can no longer keep the nations deceived. The gospel is out. He can no longer keep people in sin and misery. Forgiveness is on offer. He's lost his weapon of accusation because God has justified believers. He's declared believers innocent. Now that doesn't mean that the devil is powerless in this age. As Graham Goldsworthy writes in his book, Gospel and Revelation, the binding of the devil does not imply that there is no evil, no conflict. Rather, it is an affirmation that the kingdom has come through Jesus Christ and will permeate the world through the church as it preaches the gospel and lives by it. Or as Martin Luther wrote in his classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to devour us, we will not fear, for God has willed that naught shall overpower us. The ruler of this age may clothe himself with rage. Towards he'll do no harm. God has pronounced his doom. The merest, merest word can foul him. The devil prowls round like a roaring lion, but for believers, God has removed his teeth. All he can do is roar. He can't fight. Our strong man, Jesus, is stronger than any of our foes. They think he's siding with the devil, when in fact he's demonstrating that he's beating the devil. That's what he's doing. This is solid sense from someone stronger than Satan. But they think that Jesus is working for Satan. And ironically, actually, it's them who are siding with him, as we'll see in our last point. Solely sustained spiritual slander is the supreme sin. I'm not going to say that again, you can read it on the screen. Let me read to you verses 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they are saying he has an unclean spirit. Now this is the part of what Jesus says that troubles most people. Or troubles people most. But it's clear from context, isn't it, now, what he's talking about. The unforgivable sin, the eternal sin, is not some hidden mystery. It's not some obscure landmine of sin that's sort of hidden amongst the others, like you sort of have to play Russian roulette, you might get the wrong one. It's blatantly obvious what it is. Because it's doing what the scribes are doing, isn't it? That's from the context. It even says as much in verse 30. For, because... They were saying he has an unclean spirit. They're calling the Holy Spirit an unclean spirit, an evil spirit. And they're doing so persistently. Now here's where being a language geek is useful. I'm trained as a a language teacher, so I'm all into sort of tenses and stuff like that. But the the phrase there when it says, um, uh, when it talks about were saying, that's the imperfect tense. That means it's not something that you do once, but it's something that you keep on doing over and over again. It's not that they said it, it's that they were saying it, it kept going. It's not that there was a slip of the tongue or a momentary lapse in judgment. 
They persistently and consistently attributed the work of the Spirit in Jesus' life to the work of the devil. Now, why does Jesus pick upon the work of the Spirit? Why not the work of Jesus or the work of the Father? Well, because the mark of Jesus' ministry on earth was the Holy Spirit. It was after he received the Holy Spirit that his ministry in earnest began. That's how Mark's Gospel begins. He does miracles as the Son of God, yes, but he also does them as a Spirit-empowered man. And as he does that, it means that all parts of the Trinity are involved. All parts of the Trinity work together. Something called inseparable operation, if you want to Google that uh, later. But it means here that the Spirit was at work in Jesus' miracles. He was indwelt by the Spirit who was empowering his human flesh. But they're saying that it's an evil spirit that's empowering him, not the Holy Spirit. Why the focus on the Spirit, though, so much? Well, the gospel, specific, the gospel specifically mentioned that other blasphemies will be forgiven. So blasphemy against Jesus, for example. So Matthew 12, verse 32, it's on the back of your notice sheet. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And similarly in Luke 12, verse 10, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Why the Spirit there? Well, the same Spirit who is doing these powerful works through Jesus is the same Holy Spirit who brings spiritual life and forgiveness to us. The Spirit's work is applying the forgiveness that Jesus secured on the cross to people, to individuals. It's only by the Spirit, in that sense, that we can be forgiven and brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son. And it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that produces faith in us. So really, we can say that there are no Christians apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. There's no forgiveness for us as individuals apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Father ordains it, the Spirit, the Son, sorry, the Son accomplishes it, but the Spirit applies it to us as individuals. So if we write off the Spirit's work as demonic, then there stands no other way to receive forgiveness. How can we be forgiven when we reject the only means of forgiveness? How can we have faith in Jesus if we reject the one who brings us faith? And it's an unforgivable sin, as it's the only sin that truly closes off the avenue of forgiveness. Let me give you an illustration to help. It would be like being sat at Chernobyl, you know, that big power plant that went bang. Imagine before it exploded, looking for a way to stop it exploding. You know, the alarms are sounding, and you get on the phone and you, you chat to the guy on the phone, he says, you need to press the red button. That will stop the explosion. And you say, well, I won't press the red button. It's a bad button. It's the wrong button. I'm not going anywhere near that button. And the guy on the phone says, you need to press the red button. And the guy said, well, I, oh, I want another way. And the guy said, there is no other way. And that's the idea here. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to spurn the forgiveness that comes to us by the Spirit. There is no other way that we can get forgiveness. There is no other avenue to go. There is no other button to press. The sending of the Spirit and the coming of forgiveness are linked together all the way through the Bible. In prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, 
They're linked in Acts, as we're told to repent and be baptised, and you'll receive forgiveness, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. There is no forgiveness apart from receiving the Spirit. And if we're saying then that the Spirit is evil, then there's no possibility of forgiveness. So if you're here this morning and you haven't ever received forgiveness, the offer is open. You can come to God. God has promised his Holy Spirit to all uh, who will come. But there is no forgiveness apart from what is secured by Jesus on the cross and applied by the Holy Spirit. If you want forgiveness, you must come through Christ as the Holy Spirit enables you. Come not depending on yourself, but on Jesus and his death on the cross as the means of your forgiveness. You have to come to Christ because your good works aren't enough and there is no other way. You can come to Christ though because your bad works aren't stronger than the strong man. That's the encouragement of our passage. And that's the bit that's overlooked, isn't it, in our passage by believers as well. It's there in the first part of verse 28. Let me read it to you again. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins can be forgiven apart from that one. All sins can be dealt with apart from that singular one sin that he's talking about there. There are not, despite what you might hear, seven deadly sins. There is one deadly sin. All of the sins can be forgiven. In the orchard of sins, there is only one tree that leads to death, like it did in the beginning. But the rest can be forgiven. And that means whatever you have done, you can be forgiven. Whatever sins you have committed, they can be washed clean. They can be cleansed, forgiven, absolved. The blood of Christ is stronger than the stain of sin. Christ is the strong man who can undo what the devil has done. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. Now, do you think you're the exception? Do you think your sin is too bad? Do you think Jesus has got it wrong? Jesus has given us the one exception, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, there is no other sin that will not be forgiven. Murder, theft, lust, adultery, pornography, pride, envy, genocide. None of them is stronger than the strong man's blood. None of the devil's arsenal of iniquities is too deadly for the one who conquered death. Do we believe that? If we didn't believe that, we've got a showcase of people in Scripture, haven't we? Liars like Jacob, murderers like Moses, adulterers like David. All of them, in the end, forgiven. All sins will be forgiven, the children of men. Our sin, whatever it is, is not stronger than the strong man's blood. The only dead, deadly sin is unforgiven sin. And if we've come to Christ in faith, if the Spirit has been at work in our lives to take us to the cross of Christ for forgiveness, then our sin has been forgiven. It is no longer the deadly strain. Oh, it can hurt us. It can hurt others too. It can grieve the Spirit, but it cannot damn us. No sin, once the blood of Christ has been applied, can separate us from God. So Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, uh, sorry, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the all things there include sin. And that's what we need to preach to ourselves when we feel a bit John Bunyan-y. You know what I mean? When we feel a bit down and low. There is only one unforgivable sin. And as J.C. Ryle, Victorian Bishop of Liverpool, famously said, those who are troubled about it are the most unlikely to have committed it. That's what he said. Those who are troubled about it are the most unlikely to have committed it. This is there for our encouragement. All sins will be forgiven, the children of men. But the scribes here on the passage aren't bothered, are they? They're going to go on and have him crucified. They're the ones actually siding with the devil. That one sin is the only thing that will keep us from Christ. All of the sins can be forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross to declare us right to pay for sin. So we have no need to fear because our forgiveness is safe with Jesus. It depends on him and not us. Let me just finish with the words that John Bunyan wrote. Uh, in his autobiography when he finally realised this. This is what he wrote. I've abridged it and updated the language to make it a bit more readable. But one day, as I was passing into the field, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And as well I thought, I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand there. I say, there I say was my righteousness. So that whatever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacked my righteousness. For it was there just before him. What's more, I saw moreover that it was not my good state of heart that made me more righteous or better, nor yet my bad state of heart that made me less righteous or worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today and forever. Now did the chains fall off my legs. Indeed, I was loose from my afflictions and my fetters. My temptations also fled away. So from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Those words haunted him no longer. Instead, he had a new chorus in his head. Your righteousness is in heaven. All sins will be forgiven, the children of men. And I pray for those of us who struggle with these things, that God will place that in our heads to remember when we slip into despair. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he is stronger than Satan. Father, thank you that his blood is stronger than the stain of sin. And Father, although we know we still fall into sin, Father, help us not to fall into despair. Father, help us instead to trust in the Lord Jesus, to trust in his word that tells us that all sins will be forgiven the children of men if we just trust in the Lord Jesus. So help us to do that, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.